As we open our Bibles again to Romans today, and as we do each Sunday as a central part of our gathering, our expression of worship to God, in a time and in a culture where more and more are disbelieving the Bible, discrediting it, dismantling it, it's good for us as a church body to remember the Bible's inerrancy, authority, power, and sufficiency. James Boyce says, the Bible is something more than a body of revealed beliefs, a collection of books verbally inspired by God. It is also the living voice of God. The living God speaks through its pages. Therefore, it is not to be valued as a sacred object to be placed on a shelf and neglected, but as holy ground, where people's hearts and minds may come into vital contact with the living, gracious, and disturbing God. For a proper perspective on scripture and for a valid understanding of revelation, there must be constant interworking of these factors. An infallible and authoritative word, the activity of the Holy Spirit in interpreting and applying that word, and a receptive human heart. No true knowledge of God takes place without these elements praying that we may experience that even today as we are in Romans. We are ready to begin verse 27 and work our way through the end of the chapter as we kind of enter a transition uh, and Romans moves into a new focus. Two Sundays ago, when we were in verses 21 to 26, um, we saw this begin to be unpacked. And basically, if we could put Romans that we've looked at so far into a brief uh, nugget of looking at everything, this paragraph really comes as a climactic uh, ending to it all and the beginning, the launching of a new set of thoughts. And what I want to do just very quickly is just recap uh, very, very quickly, very, very briefly where we have been. Beginning, first of all, and going all the way back to verse 18 of chapter 1 and looking through the thoughts all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. If you can go to the next slide, we're just going to start with the concept of all mankind, all humanity. So you'll see in verse 23 of Romans 3 that all have sinned. So there's a discussion of looking at all people. Back in Romans 1, we looked at the Gentiles in particularly People without the law of God specifically given to them, no other people group, but many of them seemingly lawless really also have the law of God, we're told in Romans 2, written on their consciences, and they disobey that. Then we're introduced to the Jews, particularly at the beginning of Romans 2, and by the second half of Romans 2 and the first half of Romans 3, we are just looking intently into the advantages they have been given by God, going all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12 and the covenant that God makes with him and then the sign, the mark of his people with, through circumcision and then in Exodus, the giving of the law and then, and then later Romans even talks about the fact that they have the whole oracles or all of the Old Testament of God. And so they spend thousands of years trying to do the works of the law 
that they might be right with God, that they might be justified before him. And the conclusion over and over and over in these first three chapters has been failure to be able to do that. So by the time we get to Romans chapter 3, about verse 9 or 10, we begin to see that the conclusion is everyone is unrighteous, everyone has sinned, all of us are under sin, it doesn't matter, there's no distinction if it's Gentiles or Jews. The conclusion is none are righteous, there's no one who does good. And the result of that back in the early part of Romans 2, we're told, is that there's a day of wrath, of God's wrath coming, a day of judgment when all will be condemned and perish under this being under sin and being sinful. Last week we also saw, though, two little notes, uh, one in verse 25, that God in his forbearance has passed over sins, accepting throughout the Old Testament the sacrifices of lambs and animals. Hang on just a second. And then, secondly, the scriptures bearing witness to the fact that there was a means that God was going to provide for the full restoration of blood that was going to be sufficient to pay for sin. So by the time we get to Romans 3.21, the first two words, we have a massive change. But now... And this paragraph unpacks about nine or 10 big truths, big spiritual realities. Overarching it all, four times in this paragraph is mentioned the righteousness of God and how it has been manifested. And we're gonna find that it's a manifested through grace. Grace is the source of all the phenomenal gifts, everything else on the screen, but far, far more than that, that is given as a gift to man because man cannot earn it, make it up on his own. And that grace is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ who became on earth, Jesus of Nazareth, three times he's mentioned in this paragraph as the central means by which this grace is shown and expressed. And then we get the specific area of propitiation in verse 25, which we noted last two weeks ago was the mercy seat, the place where sacrifice and sacrificed blood was sprinkled so that sin would be atoned for. And that blood, the blood of the lamb as we often refer to it, is the central means by which Jesus Christ then provides, or God through his son, two outstanding, amazing things. Now, there are lots of other gifts in salvation. In fact, you don't even see the word salvation in here. This is dealing with two particular aspects. Doesn't mention union with Christ, which is phenomenal. Doesn't mention a lot of other areas. Adoption. There's no mention of love even in this paragraph. This is all about a legal standing, but this justification is going to run now through the middle of chapter 5. Over and over and over, we are going to see this word because it describes God's declaring of sinners who are under his wrath to be justified, to be declared, uh, accounted for, reckoned stunningly as righteous because of Christ and his blood. 
And second gift here is redemption. Mentioned in verse 24, the ransom being paid, and the ransom price is the blood of Jesus that's paid in order to free people that are in bondage. Remember that 3, 19 and 20 said that everyone was under sin, under its hold, under its slavery, under its bondage. And Christ, the Redeemer promised throughout the Old Testament that all of the law and prophets talked about has come. And so all of this then, verses 25 and 26 last week, prove that God is just as he justifies because he doesn't just ignore the sin and the violation against his holiness and let everybody come in, but he provides a door, a means, a way, a bridge for man to be able to be made right by believing, by faith, mentioned three times in this paragraph. We'll see it in today's paragraph as well, that it is critical that all of it is is received by knowing what Christ has done and the significance of that and the necessity of that, acknowledging it, assenting to it, agreeing with it, but most of all, casting oneself entirely on this. The only means that I will have when I stand before God, if I start my defense of myself with, well, I, that I've lost it. I start with, he, Jesus, my advocate, my propitiation, my defense lawyer. He said I could come because I believe that he came and sacrificially gave that blood for my sin in order to make me right before God. And the father looking at his son and looking at us through his son will acquit us, will allow us, will consider us as righteous as his son in order to enter into an eternity with him. And then what we'll see today emphasized is none of this can ever be attained by works of the law. Incredible, incredible truths in Romans 3, 21 through 26. And today... We pick up that thought from there, and intriguingly, uh, like it seems like it would have been a really good place to start chapter four right here uh, as it now begins. And you'll see as we go into chapter four in the coming weeks that this last paragraph at the end of chapter three is really introduction to some big thoughts that are going to be unpacked through Abraham, whose name we will see uh, almost 10 times in in chapter four. Easy to overlook this section, but God has inserted it here to make three vital points to stress three implications of justification by faith. And he does it once again, just as he did at the beginning of chapter two, through a Q&A, by posing a question and then answering it. Sometimes it's, it's two questions or, or phrased two different ways, and sometimes the answer is come at from several different angles. And so we'll see today three different questions, three different answers. We'll see a very hard no to the first question. We'll see a very hard yes to the second question. And we'll see a hard no to the third question. Or a couple of more ways that we can look at this. Some of you may wonder, how can one guy outline just five verses this many different ways? But here's two more ways I might suggest that these thoughts are impact. If you could go to the next slide. Because sinners are only justified by faith in Jesus Christ and not by works. We are not to boast or be proud about that in any way. 
We are not to think that God might save different people different ways or justify them different ways. And we are not to nullify the law as a result of our justification, but actually to uphold it. Or if you want my wordy English teacher trying to capture it all, such a great salvation, such amazing grace, such a propitiation by Christ, such a complete justification and redemption, and such a rejection of works by a trusting faith all radically transform how we think about ourselves and our justification or our salvation in Christ, how we think about others and their salvation and justification in and through Christ, and how we ultimately also think about the law or the commands of God because of our salvation and justification through Christ. So please follow along as we read this short but powerful, important section of Romans 3. First Q&A in verses 27 and 28. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Second question. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And third question, then do we overthrow this law, the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Father, today... These words from you teach us tremendous truths about how those mercifully justified by you and your grace through faith in Jesus are to look at our glorious justification and respond to it. So we pray again that these holy words of yours, breathed out by you for us today, will teach us and train us in righteousness and reprove us and correct us so that we may become more and more complete and mature in you and equipped for every good work that you have for us to do. We ask this in the precious and beautiful name and blood of Jesus our Savior. Amen. So verses 27 and 28, question number one, we might just say briefly a clarification about who is to get the credit for man's justification with, and that should be God, not go. So the question is, a short question is posed, what becomes of our boasting? And a very, very quick answer, it is excluded. Boasting here is the idea of, you can think of it as verbally bragging, but a lot of it is internal and happening inside of us, and it's the way we credit, give credit or give glory. Some translations even say glorying here. What becomes of our glorying or glorying in ourselves? And the answer is it's excluded. It's eliminated. It is out of bounds. It is silenced, if, if you want to use the language at the end of 3, 19 and 20. This is the same emphasis Paul makes in Ephesians 2 when he is talking about grace. And here the language is saved, not justified, but same concept, same idea, and that it's through faith and that statement then means four things. It's not your own doing. It's a gift. It's not a result of works. 
And then the result of that is no one has any grounds, no human being has any grounds to boast. Now this boasting is mentioned here in 27, 327. You'll see it again in chapter 4, verse 2. And we've already seen it a couple of times in Romans 2. So boasting or kind of being proud of one's works of the law uh, can uh, or is a universal human problem. I think you can make a stronger argument. This is primarily toward the Jews. Everything that we've seen in most everything in chapter 2 and chapter 3 has been pointing toward the Jews and saying, yes, you were given advantages, but that does not actually mean that you are in unless you come into the kingdom of God by faith. Certainly the Jews had a tendency. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 17, they boasted in God and knowing him and having the one true God as their God. In chapter 2, verse 23, they boasted as well. And so Paul is telling them that attitude must stop completely as you are now being brought into the church and being united with Gentiles. But I think the broader implication is anyone who experiences being just justified with God by faith in Jesus Christ and his blood and his grace. We Gentiles can certainly also have a law-keeping mentality, a self-righteousness that rises up from within us because of our own pride. John Piper notes it this way, self-exaltation and self-admiration and self-determination are the universal forms of worship that compete with glorifying and thanking and trusting the living God. So boasting is utterly crucial to deal with. Not only can we boast and give ourselves some credit for God saving us because of who, well, after all, who we are, we can also boast about God's work in sanctifying us and the fruit that he produces through that. We can boast about our morality that is so better looking than other people's. We can boast about our knowledge that is so much more about God than most people have. But to credit ourselves in any way with the righteous standing we have been given by grace before God that Christ has accomplished and paid for, to take any credit for that in any way is wrong and is out of bounds and must be excluded and must be killed within us. Simply put, we just tend to think we have way more contribution to our righteous standing before God than we actually do. Boisterous notes, we have too high of opinion of ourselves even to understand grace fully, let alone to appreciate it. Faith, by implication, is a humbling work it requires letting go, particularly of your attempts, yourself, all that you're trying to do to impress God, to be approved by God, and casting all of that hope entirely on someone other than yourself, and that is Jesus Christ, and on something other than what you've done, and that's on what Jesus Christ is doing. Just as the drowning man or woman has to stop flailing, struggling, trying to fight their way to the surface, and completely let go and go limp for the lifeguard to be able to truly rescue them and save them. So, as ridiculous as it would be for the swimmer to talk about how much he helped in his rescue, the credit must all go to the lifeguard. Anyone who is boasting about someone else's grace that's been given to them 
is an egomaniac. And we're taking away from glory, boasting that is to be given entirely and completely and always to God. So this ultimately isn't just don't boast. It's be careful about boasting in you and in anything you have done. Boast in a God who has shown such grace. Boast in a Christ who has done such tremendous work and the power of his blood. Here's how Paul put it, and we noted this at the end of December, a closing sermon that Josh did preach from 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. Because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. There's another theological truth. And in that, Christ has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, one of the key words here in Romans, sanctification, and then redemption. So same concepts that we see. So that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. May our boasting become more and more aligned with boasting toward him. And then verse 27 asks another question. I've attached it still as not a separate issue, but still an explanation of why boasting is excluded. And the question is, what kind of law? This is a little tricky. Law seems to be used here in a little different way than the way we normally think of it as the law of Moses, the commands of God. It's here maybe a little more as what kind of principle, what kind of reasoning, what kind of thinking, like how can you exclude boasting completely? And the answer is, is that Paul uses a unique phrase. We, it's by the law or the principle or the rule of faith. In other words, if we were able to be justified by a law of works, we might in some way have some sense of uh, contributing toward our justification. But God's law or principle is, I'm going to do it entirely 100% and then just gift it to you. So faith, as William Hendrickson says, looks away from oneself, looks uh, elsewhere and works, looks to oneself. And then later he unpacks that a little bit more. He who stresses works expects salvation to come from within or from below. He that emphasizes faith looks away from himself to God and expects salvation to come from him or from above. Even as we just sang last Sunday, as we closed our service, we sang it lustily. Uh, so strong, the Lord is my salvation. We did not sing the Lord 95% and me just a little bit with some stuff that I did is my salvation. It is entirely, 100%. God, God's grace, God's righteousness, God's power, God's gift. Or in the language of the solos of the Reformation, it is faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and God's glory alone. And then verse 28 really is just a statement, a declaration, a further explanation. There we go. And it's really a very short, but encapsulating the main idea of verses 21 to 26. For we hold, or therefore we conclude, we contend, we will not back down from this truth. That one, any sinner, any time, any place, any ethnicity is justified by faith. 
And then to make sure, really, really clear, apart from or without works of the law. R.C. Sproul said that this verse, more than any other single verse, most clearly articulates the doctrine of justification by faith, or what we abbreviate. Even though we don't see the word alone in here, it is this implication, this idea. Here's how this thought was unpacked in 1689 in the London Baptist Confession of Faith. And this is wordy, but I tried to use colors in this so that you can see the things that are unpacked in Romans and how much they come out here. Christ, by his obedience and death, and we would say in Romans, by his blood, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified and did by the sacrifice, propitiation, of himself in the blood of his cross, undergoing in their stead, substitutionary, the penalty due to unto them, make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in their behalf. Yet, inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely, not for anything in them. Their justification is only of free grace, that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners, which is how that last thought finishes in Romans 3, 26. So to just summarize the first point, and then we're going to come to the Lord's table. No taking of any credit, particularly internal, particularly in your own thinking, boasting in any way, feeling any sort of pride whatsoever toward why you have been justified and how you have been justified. Jared Wilson put this thought this way. We are saved or justified. And then five prepositions, five different perspectives on God's work of salvation. From God and we would say in Romans 3, from God's wrath, to God, by God, God the Son, through God, the Son, Christ Jesus, and for God or for the glory of God. The Godhead works in concert without our contribution so that our salvation will engulf you in God. And let's just pause here little unusual. There's more sermon coming. It's not as long as this first half. So back to Romans uh, 3, last sentences, verses 29 and 30, pose this second question or set of questions. And we might just abbreviate this as clarification on the equality of God's justifying of people, of sinners. Again, the Jews could feel an exclusive pride that they have been following the God of the scriptures, the true, one true God for all of their history. And the Gentiles, who came much later, later and much fewer in number to understand this until the church just erupted with Gentiles coming to faith, could be made in the church to feel like lesser citizens of God's kingdom. So Paul is just pressing out here through the Holy Spirit the importance of seeing the oneness of God, the oneness of God's work, the oneness of justification and of salvation. Several implications. Number one is 
There aren't other gods. There isn't another God that can provide a salvation or a justification for Gentiles that's different from Jews. Secondly, there's only one way of justification. It was through Christ and the cross and his blood. There aren't different ways that God justifies. There aren't some by works of the law and some by faith. All by faith, all by Christ, all in his blood. And then third, that God's intention in this is to create a new people, the church, the body. Peter really emphasizes this in his first, second chapter that are all drawn together around the fact that we have all been justified by faith in Christ by no other means, and we come entirely in Christ in that way. Later in Romans, it will be emphasized in chapter 10, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Jew or Gentile, by the same means, by the same work of Christ. A verse that really brings out God's heart for oneness and unity is Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 6, which read, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then, just in case that's not clear enough, God has Paul add one more line because circumcision has been talked about so often and counted on so much by the Jews, the old mark of the covenant to just say, God justifies those who have been circumcised, not by their circumcision, but by faith. And God justifies the uncircumcised, who perhaps have never until the moment of believing in him heard of God and known anything about his law. And Piper makes application for us here that I think is helpful. Think of this not only as circumcision literally physically of males, but the idea of any religious or ethnic trait, and we Americans can be guilty of this American pride, that you might think would commend you to God. And uncircumcision as anything, a missing trait or mark that you might think keep you from God. Having certain advantages proves to be no advantage ultimately in having faith and being justified by that. And not having them proved to be no disadvantage. The reason is that faith in Christ, by its very nature, looks away from distinctives, positive or negative, that you have in yourself or any human has in themselves, and looks to God's free grace in order to be justified and have eternal life. Every human, regardless of any other aspect about them, needs the gospel equally. In uh, Galatians 2, just very quickly, I'm just going to let you briefly see it. Paul starts out with writing to them, we are Jews by birth. We're not Gentile sinners. We're, we're, we're different. Yet, here's what we got to know. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Exact same message he's giving in Romans 3. He is also putting forth in Galatians 2 as well. So, don't take credit for justification don't think God justifies different people differently and don't look at anyone God has justified as being distinct above or below you better or worse than you. And then third question in verse 31 clarifies the importance of the law following justification. So we've established it contributes nothing to our actual justification other than to make us aware that we are sinners. But the question then arises and it's a logical question many might ask. Then 
Do we just overthrow or do we throw out the law? Is it no longer important if we're just going to operate by a law of faith? And the emphatic answer by Paul again, by no means. In fact, on the contrary, or just the opposite, we not only don't throw it out, we don't ignore it, we don't just leave it there, we uphold the law with a whole different attitude we're going to see. Now, we aren't doing this to earn our standing before God, but because Christ has given us our standing before God, it's the means by which we now honor him and bring glory to his name. Again, we'll see in Romans 7, 12, lots of positive things about the commands and the law of God, even as Paul wrestles with his own inability to keep them all perfectly, even as a justified man. But Jesus maybe helps us the most here with his explanation um, in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Tom Schreiner notes for us that the law, when it's rightly understood in its right place, harmonizes with righteousness by faith. It's how we then live and walk by faith in the one who has justified us by our faith. Quick reflections. I'm just going to skip that first slide, which is just a recap from the beginning of the way we outlined it. Got to be careful of how we think about ourselves, how we think about others, and how we think about the law. Let me finish with just these three prayers and hopes out of this. May these tremendous spiritual truths in these closing thoughts of Romans 3, number one, Increase your clarity. A better word, a more theological word would be your understanding. But the way that you think about God and his works of his salvation of grace. And in light of that, how you think about yourself. Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 is just so good here. It's a prayer I pray for us even out of all of this in Romans 1. Praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Secondly, May these tremendous spiritual realities and truths increase your boasting in God and about God, what we might just call your worship, your exaltation, the way you think about him, the way you express truths about him to others, particularly about salvation. And may it be ever more and more humbling to us. Douglas Moo, as long as we think however subconsciously that we have contributed something to our salvation. We will not put God on as high a plane as he should. We will loom too large, we will loom too large, and he will seem too small. And we will not worship with the absolute sense of humility, dependence, and thanksgiving that always marks the best worship. One other thing beyond that quote, 
in this area is that when we do this, when we boast in ourselves in any way, we undermine the confidence God means for us to have in the fact that he has accomplished all our salvation and we cannot unravel it and undo it. It is all his eternal work. And third and finally, may this great truth increase your desire to love God in living out his commands. That's coming in Romans uh, 5 and 6. We'll see it much more. But just brief reminders now that the way we express our love, our gratitude, our appreciation, and our worship to him is not only with words, but by a living a life where we are, by his power, in his grace, living out all that he intends for us to do when he justifies us in the first place by Jesus. Father, we thank you for these truths in Romans, and most of all, for the power of your blood in providing a means for us to be justified with you, despite more, rooms, more sins in this room than anyone could count all covered under your blood, all forgiven, all paid as a ransom to redeem us and as a means for our justification in your great courtroom someday. Hallelujah. We boast in you, God, and we boast in your ability, your design, your power, and your means to accomplish it all. And we just thank you, thank you for giving us such an incredible gift by grace. We love you. Amen.